scripture today is the same scripture from last week, um, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they were glad when they divided the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thank you, Vicki. So good morning. It's good to see you this morning, man. You get major Jesus points for being here on a morning like this morning. So thanks for being here. Uh, I want to do something, uh, if you would not just mind. I, uh, let, can we, just two things that are on my heart. The first is, I am just not feeling well. And so would you pray for me? Because we're talking about joy, <laughs> and I want to be joyful. Uh, but I've got, I've got a terrible headache and uh, some other things. I just didn't sleep well last night. So please want to stop and pray for me. The other thing is, man, we, I'm thinking of the four. We're planting four churches in Polk County. You may or may not be aware of that. And so I just texted those guys this morning because weather like this, weather like this can scare people away from church. Are you aware of that? Like it's, I thought, I'm amazed at the number of you who are here. Uh, but just to think of those guys, this, it's, there's so much with this Advent season. We're typically really even more excited about what God's given us to say during this time of year. And uh, for those guys that are planting churches to look out and see 25 or 30 people in church, can we just be really hard, you know what I'm saying? So I thought of the scripture, if you're reading with us in community Bible reading from uh, Zechariah 4 this past week we read, where the Lord says, for whoever has despised the day of small things shall, re shall rejoice. And today's probably a day of small things for a lot of our church plants, uh, few people, uh, at a time when you want everybody to be there and be really excited because it's Christmas and that sort of thing. So can I, I can imagine it's a temptation for them to become discouraged. So could we just stop and pray for them too? Do you mind? Uh, and so let's pray for those two things and then we'll get into the text this morning. So Father, we thank you that uh, when we are weak, you're strong and that you're the God of small things. With you, nothing's small. No crowd is small. You, in fact, take Gideon's army of thousands and whittle it down to 300 because it's too big for you to do anything with until it gets to that small place. And so we just rest in you this morning and we pray for strength for me and for uh, the strength of hearing for all of us and we pray for our church plants, uh, for Stan and Jeremy and Josh and Jeff. Uh, help those guys not be discouraged if, if there are smaller crowds today. Help them to preach with all of the joy and vibrancy of the Spirit. Uh, and do great things, even here among us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And so we're taking these four weeks of this uh, Advent season, and we're staying right here in Isaiah chapter 9, because it's, it's such a, you know, an important passage, it, it makes its way around this time of year, 
And Isaiah 9 describes a series of reversals that Christmas brings and that the second coming of Jesus will ultimately bring. And so we've said in verse 2, you see there, darkness turned to light. In, in verse 3 this morning, sadness turned to joy and so forth. It goes on. So every week we're going to take verse 2, verse 3 this week, verse 4 next week, verse 5 the week after and see and see these reversals. Now, Isaiah, of course, is looking, is looking forward to the coming of this promised king in whose reign all these things will happen, this child who's going to be born, the son who will be given. We are looking back on the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the kingdom of heaven broke into the world, we're also looking forward to his second coming when he comes again and the kingdom will come in all of its fullness. But it's a strange thing that in between, that already and the not yet of the kingdom that we are forced, we're sandwiched in between. And so if you think of something like our topic this morning, joy, verse three, we're talking about joy. Isaiah knew that the coming of the king would turn all of the sadness and loss of the world to joy. If you think about it, there's so much joy in the early chapters of the Gospels around the stories of Jesus' birth. I mean, everybody's singing. There's just eruptions of joy everywhere. I mean, the incarnation is a cause for great joy and wonder. And the joy Isaiah saw began then when Christ came, but the sadness did not end. And so Christmas does not mean joy without sadness. It is the hope that there can be joy in the midst of sadness. Until he comes again, and when he comes again, he will wipe away every tear, and there will be no more mourning or crying or pain anymore. And listen, listening to Jenna Bush read that passage, I don't know if you got to see the, the, um, the funeral service this week, but just listen, I was walked into mechanics, my mechanic's office, and it was there on the TV. And uh, it may have been that I, what I thought was going to be a $1,000 bill was only a $40 bill, but... Uh, I think it was that I was listening to her read those words, and there was just such amazing joy. I just felt such amazing joy listening to her read that, and it made me realize how much my heart longs for that day. But it also made me realize how much I need the joy of that day now. Anybody else? Well, that's what we get to talk about this morning. And so I want you to, we're going to focus on verse 3, and we'll look at that in just a minute, but in verse 3 and then the answer in verses 6 and 7, I want you to see this topic of joy, our typical thing, right? Three things. Why, why do we need it so much? Secondly, where does it come from? And then lastly, how do you get it? And once you have it, how do you hold on to it? Because that's the trick, really, isn't it? How do we live with this kind of triumphant joy <clears throat> in light of the day that, that Jesus' second coming will bring, but even now? Why we need it, where it comes from, and how you get it and hold on to it, okay? So first, why we need joy. And we need joy because of our life really mirrors what Isaiah says of his own day in verse 1. So look there. He says, There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. For in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea. And so there's this description of the world there, of the land there, for us the world. And what we're told is that the world without God is sad. We need joy because life is a lot like today. It's gloomy and in anguish and full of contempt. And all of those words are important. If you see those three words, you see gloom and anguish and contempt there in verse 1. Now let's work our way backwards and just kind of define each of those words. Contempt is the word that is trans, it's translated humbled, really, in some other translations. It, it describes the experience of being thwarted. That we are by nature very prideful creatures, that we like to be powerful and in control, and uh, the times where it feels like we're powerful and in control 
It feels real, but it's just an illusion. The truth is that we are not in control. Secularism, however, has taught us to view suffering as something, quote, separated from the narrative structure of life, a kind of noise or an accidental interference, an interruption. The Bible, however, says that suffering is actually a dose of reality. It is a reminder of what life is really like. And what is life really like? We're not in control. And so the text says, in the former times, he brought into contempt the land of Naphtali and, and Zebulun. And the he there, of course, is God. And so this is saying, this is saying that God often works to humble us. He thwarts us. He allows pain and suffering to come into our lives because he knows that no suffering, not even cancer, can destroy us. The real cancer is self-reliance. There's this idea that if you become a Christian, life will just go good for you all the time. The Bible says it's ridiculous. If you're a child of God, there will always be what the Bible calls trials. Not because God doesn't love you, but because he does love you. And he has greater designs for you. And so contempt is a word that describes the way we all experience life. This humbling, this being thwarted, this things going not the way we want them to go the introduction of pain and suffering into our lives. Well, naturally, this leads to anguish. You see that word there as well. And that word refers to being overwhelmed physically uh, and emotionally, kind of how I feel at the moment a little bit physically. Uh, just a sense of being distressed or exhausted. So typically, typically we feel joyful and peaceful when everything's going good. And that's the problem, right? Because things are hardly ever going good. We need something else. We need to learn how to face even hard things, and not lose our joy. Otherwise, otherwise, we're left with what we see here, this word gloom, a day like today, but you know, emotionally melancholy and sadness and kind of long-faced and depressed. Now, that's what life is like. That's what, that's what our experience of this world, that's how it feels a lot of the time. Now, the text also teaches us why we experience the world this way, why it is for so many of us that we kind of find ourselves stuck in this place often, and this prophecy was written in a very specific historical context in 740 to 720 BC. And so let me just explain that, the, the concrete political tensions around that time. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali were the northernmost tribes of Israel on the west side of the Jordan River, if, if you're familiar with the uh, geography of, of the land of Israel. When the Assyrian army invaded around that time, uh, as we read about in uh, Kings and Chronicles and then also, you know, in some of the prophets, they were the first of the tribes of Israel to fall. So Tiglath-Pileser and his forces defeated Israel's armies and carried the people off into exile. Uh, and it's a huge storyline in the Old Testament scriptures, uh, and especially the prophets. It was an act of judgment against the sin of God's people. And so the language here is very concrete. It's the language of exile, that Naphtali and Zebulun were brought into contempt because they were the very first of all the people in Israel. And it happened for the entire nation over the span of about a 200-year period of time. But at the very beginning, they were the very first to be taken into exile. And so it's the language of exile. And so the promise of this passage is the promise of a return from exile, of a king who would come to bring the people home from the foreign land to which they had been sent, and that they would again be under the rule of a son of David uh, and not a foreign king, and all of their gloom and anguish would be turned to joy. Now, that's the original historical context of, Isaiah, of Isaiah's prophecy. He's prophesying to Judah in the south about what's happened to Israel in the north because it's going to happen to Judah soon. And he's saying, even if you go into exile, one day a king will come and he'll bring you home. Now, what does this have to do with us 3,000 years later? Well, 
Let me trace this out by going to the right and to the left of this prophecy in your Bible, okay? So if you turn your pages to the right, the story plays it out, plays itself out like this. Kings like Hezekiah and Josiah, these good kings, are born, but they don't bring the kind of deliverance Isaiah foretells. And eventually, the southern kingdoms fall too in 586 B.C. Now, not to the Assyrians, because the Assyrians since then have been conquered by the Babylonians, and, but the Babylonians, who have risen to power, come against Judah and Jerusalem, and, and they eventually ransack the city, and all of the people are sent into exile in Babylon. And after a generation or two, they return to the land. This is the storyline of you know, Nehemiah, Ezra, and Esther and these, these books in the Bible. And they return to the land. The exile ends. But even in the, ending, the, the exile ending, they, they keep looking for this child king that's promised here in Isaiah chapter 9. But he doesn't come. I mean, there's some, you know, Zerubbabel, who we're reading about now, some, there were some kings that they thought, okay, here he is, this is, this is the one. But ultimately, no king, and no king comes. And as the pages of the New Testament open, the people are living in the land. They've come back to the promised land, but uh, in some ways, they're still in exile. Uh, it's not a physical exile, obviously, but, but still exile, because this child king has not yet come. And then Mary and Joseph, and the angels, and Bethlehem, and Jesus, and all that stuff happens... And what the New Testament writers are telling us is this is the king that Isaiah foretold. And he has come not just to return the people to the land, they're already in the land. And so something more. He's come to do something more, something greater than those who originally heard this prophecy imagined that God was doing. And here you have to turn the pages to your, in your Bible to the left of this prophecy. You have to go this way now <clears throat> to the very beginning pages of the story. And if you remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the first man and the first woman sinned against God in the Garden of Eden, and as a punishment for that sin, what happened to them? They were exiled. They were kicked out of the garden. And that is the true exile, that we were made to live in the light of God's face, as we said last week, but now we wander in darkness east of Eden, to borrow the phrase from John Steinbeck's famous book. The world is a sad place because we are still in some ways, even to this day, in exile. And we are in exile because of our sin. We are alienated from God. And this is the human condition. And until Jesus comes again, listen, I have good news this morning, but there's bad news first. And that is that until Jesus comes again, it will pretty much be this way. And so a life without sadness is not possible. We can't avoid that. But we can't avoid a life without joy. And that's what we're after. And so secondly, what we need then is joy in the midst of the experience of life like this. So where does the joy that can come and even buoy us in sadness, this joy to overcome or this joy to triumph over sadness come from? And the text tells us, beginning in verse 3, so into this land of gloom and anguish and contempt, you know, Isaiah begins to say, well, the Lord has come to do something. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy, and they rejoice before you. For because, well, for, for, go to verse 6, for or because, in other words, how is it that God has done verse 3? Well, verse 6 is the answer to exactly how he's going to do verse 3. So you've increased our joy, you've done all these things, we're joyful, we're rejoicing. Verse 6, for, because to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Now, I started to think this week, you know, Isaiah nine here really is a birth announcement. And I love getting birth announcements. Anybody else? Aren't those the, the, just so much fun to get in the mail? C.S. Lewis said uh, that the experience of joy 
is uh, not complete until you express it. That actually part of the enjoyment of something is the desire to want to share it with someone else. And, and so if something brings you joy, there's this compulsion in you that it feels incomplete until you're able to, to share it. And the sharing of it is the consummation of the joy that you feel. So parents send birth announcements to announce their joy and to invite other people into it with them because that's just it's the most natural thing you could do. And that's how I'd like for you to think about this text. I think it's helpful to think about what God is doing here. This is God's, the birth announcement of God's son where he's saying, I am so excited. I want you to enjoy it with me. So where does the joy come from? I think the answer is it comes from God. And one of the things that we have to wrestle our hearts into believing is uh, that God, God is a happy God. Do you believe that? Is that how you think of him or do you imagine him gloomy and grumpy? If, if, you, if, if you do, somewhere, you, you're the victim of some really bad theology somewhere. Because at the center of all reality is an overflowing spring of happiness among the persons of the Trinity. And that's so important because sin is the search for happiness apart from God. Uh, but no such thing exists. There is no happiness without him. There's only happiness in him. And we sinfully think of God as a cosmic killjoy. I'm, C.S. Lewis, I can't get away from him, I'm sorry. So just hang in there with me with that. But... He once asked a schoolboy what he thought of, of, of God and what God was like, and the boy said as far as he could make out that God was the sort of person who was always snooping around to see if anybody was enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. And nothing could be further from the truth. God is happy. And what this text shows us is that, is that he wants to share his joy with us. He's generous with his joy. And so salvation in the Bible is the offer of entering into God's joy. That's Matthew 25, 23. That Jesus lived and died, we're told, so that his joy, God's joy, might be in us and our joy might be full. So God's goal is our ultimate joy. Do you believe that? See, that's, do you believe that God's goal is your ultimate joy? That everything he's doing in the world is for your joy? And the core of his joy is his delight as the father of the son. I mean, the joy of God is not only joining himself, but joining Jesus. And so it's all centered on this child king of Isaiah 6, 9 and his reign. And so joy is entering into, the joy that we need is the joy of entering into the father's joy and the delight of his son. Uh, there's a story. See, we're so, in other words, joy is something you don't, you don't conjure joy. You have to catch it. It's something you have to get in or get around and so that it can come into you. And there's a story, my favorite story in the early chapters of the Gospels is a story in Luke chapter 1 where um, Mary finds out she's pregnant and uh, there's not joy. There's fear and uh, anxiety and uh, shame and all these kinds of things. And she goes because she's so overwhelmed by it to visit her, um, her cousin Elizabeth, who is also you know the story, is a miraculous birth. John the Baptist is going to, you know, the cousin of Jesus is her child. She's been barren for years, and yet the Holy Spirit's come, and she has this child miraculously. And as Mary, this, it's just so amazing to me, as Mary walks in, Mary comes into the house where Elizabeth is, and Elizabeth reports that as Mary, pregnant with the child Jesus, as Mary comes near, the child within her begins to leap with joy because he's just in the presence of his king. It's an amazing thing. I mean, it's so instinctual in John the Baptist that he just gets near Jesus and he starts to leap with joy in his mother's womb. 
And that's kind of how instinctual our joy should be. And what happens is it's a chain reaction of joy. John's joy causes Elizabeth to just erupt with joyful proclamation of who Mary is. And then so Elizabeth catches John's joy, and then Mary catches Elizabeth's joy, and that's when she begins to sing the Magnificat. And so joy is not something you, ca- you conjure, you, you have to catch it. C.S. Lewis said it's, it's like catching an infection. That if you want joy, you have to get close to, he said, or even into the thing that has it. And so the key to getting joy is to get close to or even into this God who is overflowing with joy and delight and excitement in his son and that it comes into you. Now we're given two metaphors that describe this joy in verse 3. It's the joy of the harvest, you see there? And it's the joy of victory. So they, they, they look there, they rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest. And they're glad when they divide the spoil. And so a couple things. For one, it's an occasion joy. In other words, there's something that happens. There's a harvest, there's a victory. In other words, it doesn't just come from you. It flows from who God is, as we've said, that God is happy. And if you get into him, you get happy too. But it also flows from what he does that God does something, and when you see it, when you see what God has done, when it becomes real to you, then you get the joy too. But it's also an intense joy. Those metaphors really speak to you. It's, it's a big thing. You have to imagine here the photos. If you, you remember the photos of the celebrations in the streets of New York City on, on uh, v, you know, V-Day in World War II? That's the kind of thing. Or all of the harvest festivals that we throw in the fall of each year. What, why do we do that? Well, because 100 years ago, that was just such an important thing for our society that it was a cause to stop everything and celebrate. That kind of joy. That kind of joy is what we're talking about here. And the Father wants to, sh- that's the kind of joy that God has. And it's the kind of joy that he wants to share with us because joy, joy is the key. And so as I, before I go to this last uh, point and finish up here, joy is the key. And I want to give you three applications. So if you would, if you take notes, would you just write somewhere joy is the key? Because I, I want, joy is the key in three different ways. And this may be a little cheesy, but this was, this was helpful to me. And I want to use the word key in three different ways because there's lots of different meanings for the word key. But joy is the key in all these different ways. It's the key of gospel Christianity. And I use the word key here as in the key we sing in. We sing the song in the key of C. So if, you're, if everybody's singing in C and you're in D, guess what? You're out of key. You're off key. So joy is the key. The key to Christianity, uh, the key Christians live in is joy because Christianity is gospel, not religion. It's grace. It's all gift. It's received. So Christianity is, is joy, not duty. Religion is all about duty. Do this, do that, do, 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 do. But if, if it's all our doing, then why does God come into the world? He came to do the doing for us. Isn't that the message of Christmas? And one of the hints, one of the hints for us One of the hints for Paul that the Galatians were drifting away from the gospel was they began to lose their joy. What happened to your joy, he says? Joy. Joy means that you're still in touch with grace. When you start to lose your joy, it's because you're losing sight of grace. You're losing sight of God and what he has done. You're too focused on yourself. So it's the key to gospel Christianity. But secondly, joy is the key not only to becoming a Christian, but but secondly, joy is the key to growing as a Christian in sanctification. And here key means like the key that unlocks the door. Joy unlocks spiritual power. So the way you grow as a Christian is not more willpower, but more joy. Because as our theological fathers knew, the will bends towards desire. 
Verse 2, look there again. You've increased their joy, said the prophet. And that's the power to overcome sin. St. Augustine became a Christian when he came to have more joy in God than he did in his mistress. That was his dilemma for years and years and years. Is he, he, loved, he loved his sexual appetites and had more joy in them than he did in God himself. And, and then something happened to him, and here's the way he put it. He said, how sweet all at once for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true sovereign joy, you drove them from me and took their place. You who, who are sweeter than all pleasure. So if you're struggling with anxiety or sexual sin or envy, whatever it might be, the key key that unlocks victory in those things is not more willpower. You need more joy. Pray for joy, and then the will will follow. Lastly, though, joy is also the key to glorifying God in everything, and key here, I mean, is the main thing. Joy glorifies God. So that first Peter passage that Jonathan read, though you've not seen him, you love him, and you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. See, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him because our joy shows his supreme worth. Listen, if you can endure sad things and still be happy in God, you show that he is the true source of happiness, that he is better than anything that you might lose, which is why he's so invested in our joy, because he wants to be glorified. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Or, as John Piper would say, to glorify God by enjoying him forever because that's the way that you glorify him. Now, lastly then, well, then how do we get this joy? How do you get it and how do you hold on to it? If it comes from the Lord, if it comes from being near him, being in him, the one, the, the, the joyful father of the son, how do you get it? How do you hold on to it? And the answer, of course, is Christmas. It's the coming of this child king that Isaiah promises. So let's go back to the two metaphors again in verse, uh, in verse 3 the harvest and uh, the, the military victory. What is it about those two experiences that make them so full of joy? And I think it's because at some point the outcome was uncertain. I mean, you hit a dry patch in the summer and it looks like the crops are ruined or the enemy gains an upper hand in battle and it looks like all is lost. And in that moment, there's incredible fear and, and gloom and sadness and then something happens. The rains come or the improbable, improbable victory happens the crop comes in and the enemy surrenders and there's just, there's just joy. Some kind of turn. And the joy is in the turn. It's in experiencing the turn. And Tolkien had a word for this turn in the story. He said it's the eucatastrophe. It's this improbable, sudden, happy turn in the story at the moment of deepest doubt that ultimately brings the joy. And it's in all the great stories that we love because what Tolkien argued was it's in the stories because it's true of reality. It's the way things work in the world. That human history is not a tragedy. It's actually a, what he called a fairy story, which is why he wrote fantasy books. And listen, it's why you should read fantasy books. Because fantasy books remind us of what life is really like. All this dark stuff on Netflix and HBO, that's not the way life really is. Life Life is dark, but there's always the turn. And Tolkien said that the incarnation, God coming into the world in the person of Jesus, was the eucatastrophe of human history. That Jesus Christ came to bring us back from exile, not just to bring Israel back into the land, but to bring us back 
to God. Listen, our home is not a place. It is a person. And the only way to get the joy you need is to get into the happy God who can make us happy. And that's why Jesus' life did not meet with expectations. His mission was not the restoration of Israel and the land without Roman occupation. His mission was the restoration of Israel and the whole world with God himself. And the only way he could rescue us from exile is to become an exile for us. And that's what the Bible says happened in his death on the cross. That this child king, surprisingly, would not sit on a throne, but would instead hang upon a cross so that all of the sins separating us from God could be taken away. Jesus was exiled from his true home. He came to the earth to live and to die, to bring us into the joy of the Father in heaven. And his death was the ultimate exile. And that's why you and I can live with joy no matter what's happening around us. Because Jesus died and was raised so that, as a byproduct, we could live near the fountain of joy at the center of reality. But how do you hold on to it? Because, man, that's the hard part, isn't it? Well, just two things as I close. In order to hold on to this joy that Jesus has purchased for us in his life and death, you have to remember your future. That's the one thing. That one day soon he will come again, and when he comes again, everything sad will come untrue. Now we are forced to live with joy in the midst of sadness, but then there will be no more tears. And in Revelation 19, heaven is pictured as a wedding feast. And, you know, if you've been to a wedding, it's an image that carries the idea of joy and celebration. Listen, we are destined for joy. The Bible says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross and despised its shame. And so the shame and the physical and the emotional pain, those were all little things because his joy was so big. And the Bible says the joy ahead of you is that big too. If you're a Christian, it's so big that it will make the saddest thing you go through now feel light and momentary. Don't forget your future. The future is the day when he will wipe away every tear and there will be no more sadness. But not yet. Not yet, right? And that's why the second thing you gotta do is not only do you have to remember your future, but you have to remember where you are in the story. Because the child king has come. The kingdom is already here the turn has already happened. The enemy is on the run. The darkness is fleeing. To use the language of our passage, the government is on his shoulders. In the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And all of that means that the final outcome is no longer in doubt because the deciding battle has already been won in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so his purposes on the earth will stand. And guess what he purposes? He purposes to turn your tears to joy. Psalm 126, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing sheaves with him. That is the shape of life in Jesus' kingdom. We sow in tears, but the tears are not final. I love that image. They are like seed that goes into the earth, and Jesus promises a harvest of joy for every tear. So what sad thing are you enduring today? Christmas is the promise that all of your sadness will be turned to joy, maybe, maybe tomorrow or maybe a year from now, or maybe a million years from now, but eventually, inevitably. Sadness is real. Let's be honest about that. Sadness is real in this world, but it is not ultimate. Joy is. And that can help you be joyful now. There's this line. I think it's, I think it's from C.S. Lewis. It sounds like C.S. Lewis, it probably is, but there's this line that I go back to all the time where uh, Lewis, Lewis is writing in The Great Divorce, I think, and he says, he's talking about a saint that they see in heaven, and he says, there's already joy 
in the little finger of a great saint. There's already enough joy in the little finger of a great saint to waken all the dead things in the universe to life. Joy. To wake up a dead heart or a dead marriage or a dead church. Oh God, increase our joy. Amen. Let's pray. Will you pray with me? So Father, as we come to this table now in these last moments of our service, would you do just that? Would you come and end this meal, take our sadness in the hand and minister to us and bring us your joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There, there, there are some who would say for a Christian to ever be sad is just wrong. There are some that would say it's even sinful because... Uh, the kingdom is here, right? But, but what we forget is that the kingdom is here, yes, but it's also not yet. It's not here fully. And so uh, the world is still full of sadness. But the trick is that even in the midst of sadness, to not lose the joy. To, to have a joy that's ever increasing until the day when sadness is no more and all there is is joy. But for now, we hold on to these words that though, though we're not home yet, uh, the king has come. The world is different. The joy of the Father is now loose in the world, and we can have it. Uh, And that's what these words mean. So receive them, and then go joyfully. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.